Many of you either know or have read C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales about Lucy and her two brothers and sister and how they go through the wardrobe and they're in Narnia. And in Narnia, they're kings and queens. And when they come back and they're getting ready for their second adventure, it's something they can't shake, that this is who we really are. Where is our identity? Is it in Narnia or is it in London? When we come to worship, we kind of face something like that because God's word tells us, remember back in the passage uh, that we looked at in uh, 1 Peter 2, that we are holy and royal priests, that we come through the curtain that has been torn apart because of the shed blood of Christ. Now, one of the things that this passage in inviting us and telling us to praise God, to praise the Lord, and, and one of the things that has happened in this series as we have looked at different passages dealing with entering into the presence of God, we have seen certain parts of who God is. We've seen God's mercy. We've seen God's justice, his forgiveness. And today it's his compassion. Look again at verses 13 and 14. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Every time we come into the presence of God in the Psalms or New Testament passages, we see something new about God, that he is merciful, that he is forgiving, that he is just, and today that he is compassionate. So we are called to praise the Lord in his presence as priests of our compassionate God. That's the focus this week. Coming into his presence as priests for our compassionate God. Now I've kind of taken the simple way of creating an outline in terms of we're going to look at praise, we're going to look at what it means to be in his presence, and we're going to look at what it means again to be a priest. Now we use the word praise a lot. There's a lot of music that uses the English word praise. When you go and you look up praise the Lord, in Hebrew, that's hallelujah. Because praise is halu, which means to shine, to glorify, to celebrate, to give light. So that when we think about what the psalmist is saying to his generation, it's to bring light on God, to shine light on God, to glorify him, to celebrate him, to give light. I found it interesting when I was looking at the different um, English academic, you know, between Oxford and Cambridge and their description of words, is that all, both of them, remind us sometimes in the second definition, that it is an expression of respect and gratitude as an act of worship. So when we think about praising God, part of it is just respecting him. Part of it is giving gratitude 
as an act of worship. Now, Paul in Romans 15 says, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples of the earth extol him. Paul brings over, the other New Testament writers bring over this idea of praising God among the people. So when, when we hear the beginning of this, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of the Lord, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. We need to remember that when we read verse 2, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, that because of Christ and because we are called to be priests, that we can stand in those courtyards. We're going to look at the whole idea of what it means to be a priest later on near the end of the sermon. But yet the idea of praising in the courtyards, when we come together because of Christ's shed blood, we can praise him, we can glorify him, we can put the spotlight on him. One of the things of this psalm, is it is one of the psalms that one commentator said is a foundational psalm. It's not in the cycle of other psalms. It is a foundation. Do you hear the call? Do you hear the call to come and to praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God? That is what our worship services are all about, is standing in the courts of God. Standing in his presence, coming there. We know we come only because of the shed blood of Christ. Because he has torn the curtain from top to bottom. But yet we are to be a people of praise. To praise God. When you remind yourself through praise, through praising God, I think it tremendously alters the way you look at the world. Now, it's interesting that in this passage, he gets down to what we might think of as some of the nitty-gritties. I mean, he talks about the weather, doesn't he? Who's behind the weather? Who's going to make it rain? Who's storing up the thunderbolts? It's God. Who in his providence brought this slave people and overthrew kingdoms? That's why he's worthy of praise. He reminds us in verse 8 of what happened in Egypt. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. Do you see here in this passage, in his praise, his redemption, he reminds him of the historical and the political military power of God to strike down nations for his people. That God acted on behalf of his people who here often are called his servants. Now, I want us to go back because I want us to kind of focus on verse 2 when we think about the presence of God of being in the presence of God. 
He calls us in the end of verse 1, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. When we worship, we need to have that sense of being in the very presence of God. And here he speaks of the temple courts, the house of the Lord. We know that God is building up the church as the house of the Lord, this side of the cross. And so when we enter the church, we enter the courtyards of the Lord, we enter the house of God. We come into his presence. The only reason we know we are in his presence is because of his word. And so we ask that the Holy Spirit would take the word of God and bring that into our hearts so that we can see that we are in the presence of God. That we can know that we are in the presence of God. So we are coming to church to praise him. To be in the courts of God. To be in the house of God. That we have that sense. That God is with us and that we are with God. And we are humbled because it is only because of the shed blood of Christ. That we can come into his presence. But think again about how when the tabernacle and the temple You know, there were all these squares of only certain people could go here and here and you had to have blood and you had to do this. All of that has been opened up so that we can worship in the presence of God. I think that is one of the ways how underground churches, churches that in areas that are extremely persecuted, that they have that sense of presence. Some of you have read the story of Corrie ten Boom and her experiences in the concentration camps in World War II. She said something that, you know, it's one of those things that you keep in your mind. When it was the darkest, I had the strongest sense of his presence. And I always thought it was interesting, this is not a young woman, this is someone in her mid-50s. Someone who had lived in her family, the comfort of her family business and home and church and all of that. And all of a sudden she is in a very dark place that will take her father, that will take her sister. But yet she will have that sense of God's presence in the darkest place. Because God's word has told her that. God's word has reminded her of that. And so we, when we come to presence and we've got this beautiful windows with, we, I wondered if they would leave them for us, you know, the children's stained glass windows for us. I just think that is so cool. But we have all this light. And that was one of the things the reformers reminded us is that the light represents the presence of God. So when the sunlight comes in, It is to remind us that we are in the very presence of God. And so when we worship him and we think about Isaiah um, 6, which we had a reference to in the first hymn, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We can come into the presence of the holy God because of the shed blood of Christ. And being in his presence should affect both our prayer lives and our scripture reading. Our prayer life in that we are speaking with our Heavenly Father who has opened the way, given us His Spirit, so that we can communicate both individually and corporately together. That when we pray, 
especially when we pray in the quietness of our own silence and wherever we pray at home, that we have that sense of presence. And then when we read Scripture, when we read Scripture, we need to realize it is the true and living God who has given us His living Word. And that we're reading it in the presence of God and asking Him to teach us, to show us what it means so it can be applied to our lives, so it can enlighten us and encourage us. And so the idea of the presence of God has some very practical, everyday reminders about what it means to be in the presence of God. Now, I'm going to say something that is on the surface, it's a casual comment, but it's meant to go deep because it's a discussion that we need to have together in our community. Not just the church community, but the larger Highland community. When I hear about an academic of depression, I know that part, not all, hear me when I say part of the solution is having the presence of God. Because if you have the presence of God in your life, you have a foundation to begin to build. You're not free-falling to the bottom. Because God is with you. And God has not left you alone, but has brought you into a community. See, one of the things that that when we think about the presence of God, we need to remember that that is also when we are corporately together. We read about our neighbors who are depressed or whatever. What happens to them is they've isolated themselves. They've cut off relationships. When we think about the presence of God, it gives us a foundation. Remember how a while back I said, you know, we can have that phrase that Christ is in me and I am in Christ every day to start that way, to remind us of the truth. Part of this passage is going to be to remind us that we stand in the very courtyards of God, both individually and collectively, that we're not alone. That God's reality is experienced both in community in families, and individually. Now, when I go to the last part about priests, I'm going to start off with verse 4, when it says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. You have that covenant commitment of God to his people. It reminds us in verses 6 and 7 of how he is sovereign even over the weather. You come down to verse 19 when it says, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. You notice how he goes from the, the nation's well, you might sing the nation state, the family Israel, to the house of Aaron, to the tribe of Levi. And see, when we read that as Christians, we need to say, I'm a royal priest, I'm a holy priest because of what Christ has done, so it's talking to me. 
that I am called to be a priest, as we remember that from the past, the sermon from 1 Peter 2. Now, priest had an interesting position because you stand facing God, representing the people. So one of the things that we need to do is to intercede for our failing world. Now, in this passage, you have one of those descriptions about something that most of us might say, well, that's, is, that, is that relevant today? But let me, let me read it to you. Verse, beginning to ver- read in verse 15 about the idols. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The idols of the nation. Now we could run this through and if you, I, I will tell you that the, the present expert from my background, if you put Tim Keller and idol in Google, you're going to get a bunch of sermons and a bunch of uh, articles you can read because he has done a lot of thinking about this. This is a man whose ministry is in Manhattan. So when, when it says the idols of the nation are silver and gold, that's kind of where he was living before he, I mean, he still works, but he's retired. I mean, you know, what, whatever. But one of the things, though, that I, one of the things I want you to hear, look at the end of verse 17. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. There's two things that that says to us is, remember how did God create everything? He breathed it out. How did God give us the word of God? He breathed it out through his apostles and his prophets. That's the contrast to the idols. The idols do not have revelation. They do not have the truth. They do not speak. They do not see. They're the creations of them. Now, this is, you know, you you hear me say sometimes this verse is kind of scary. Look at verse 18. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. I have felt for a very long time that oftentimes sin has its own penalty built in. It's going to be self-destructive. So what happens here? Those who make them become like them, so do all those who trust in them. Now, Tim Keller says in a very simple way that idolatry is always the reason we do anything wrong. Something will capture our hearts and imaginations, becoming the most important concern, value, or allegiance in our lives. So every personality, community, and thought will be based on either God himself or some God substitute an idol. See, in all of this ability to praise him, he's pointing out that what human beings have the tendency to do is to try to go create a counterfeit God. To create something in God's presence, something that they can control. 
This is in the midst of a psalm that is telling us to praise God, to give Him the glory, to shine the light on Him. And what do people do? They go over there and they try to create something in their own image. Now, it's when the good becomes ultimate. Now, I was thinking about all the things that I could use as an illustration, and again, this is the beginning of a conversation because it is so multifaceted. But for a long time, someone who was in the military, I have felt like in my nation that security had become an idol. Now, security that was, is represented by three different kinds of quests, economic, health, and borders. Now, when I look at in my country again, in the battle between socialism and capitalism, every economic system that we have, that we look for security in, needs to be looked at through the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Because people who look for economic security through a system are eventually going to create an idol that is going to be based upon some form of covetousness. Now, do I mean we shouldn't try to figure out and solve economic problems? No. But on the one hand, we need to look at generosity. We need to look at mercy. There's all kinds of ways the Bible speaks to a variety of economic issues. People are looking for health security. One of the things, and I'd say this in a loving way, is that we all know about each other is that all of us, unless Jesus comes back, are going to die. In the wedding ceremony that Celeste and I had, that was mentioned until death do us part. Now, there are strange stories, you know, you read stories about people are, someone's on the deathbed and they're dying, and then 10 minutes later the other person dies. Very seldom does that happen. It does, but very seldom. But death happens. We should try to take care of people the best that we can, but we know that death will come. And that death is not the end. And then the idea of security with our borders, my tribe, that, you know, as long as I'm safe, you know, there's a whole large discussion we could have biblically about that. But security is not a bad thing, but it can become an idol if it becomes our ultimate. Now, I want to close, um, or almost close, with this long, longer quote than I normally do from Tim Keller. Because what is our response to when we find idolatry in our lives? Tim Keller says two things. We need to repent and we need to rejoice. He says rejoicing and repentance must go together. Repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. Rejoicing without repentance is shallow and will only provide passing inspiration instead of a deep change. Indeed, it is when we rejoice over Jesus' sacrificial for love for us most fully that, paradoxically, we are most truly convicted of sin. 
When we repent out of fear of consequences, we are not really sorry for our sin, but for ourselves. Fear-based repentance, I better change her, God will get me, is really self-pity. In fear-based repentance, we don't learn to hate the sin for itself, and it doesn't lose its attractive power. We only learn to refrain from it for our own sake. But when we rejoice over his sacrifice, suffering love for us, seeing that it cost him to turn us from sin, we learn to hate the sin for what it is in itself. See, when I, I'm going to continue reading a moment, but see, isn't that what the passage from 15 to 18 is all about? So, the, the thing that most assures us of God's unconditional love, Jesus' costly death, is that the thing that most convicts us of the evil of sin, fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. It is because we have been forgiven of our sins and we come as a people of praise, as his priests in his presence and of our compassionate God, that we when we join together, need to see ourselves as both a people of praise as well as priests of praise. That we take from what the people have and to praise God, to give him the glory, to give him the light, to give him our gratitude. And all of that sensing his presence in our worship and in our lives. Let us pray. Father, you have given us this wonderful psalm with all of these images that can powerfully grip our imagination and change our hearts. We pray that we might indeed always be a people of praise in your presence as your priests because you have been such a compassionate God. We pray that we might be compassionate people because we have experienced your compassion. We pray that as a congregation, we would be known as a place where God is present. That that would be one of our great identifying marks. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.